0: Coming up on the Keto Camp Podcast, we bring back the carnivore MD himself, Dr. Paul Saladino.
1: is clearly the first thing that men and women think about. They dream about meat. That's the best thing in their diet. And by meat, I mean meat and organs. And then they think about honey and berries and fruit. And then all else failing, they'll go to vegetables like tubers. And then all else failing with that, they might eat a leaf or grind up some seeds. But generally, these are not a big part of their diet. And that's the kind of stuff that's so interesting to me and starts to kind of at least generate hypotheses. Like maybe we've got the wrong idea about where we've come from as humans and what's really going to turn on our evolutionary program in the right way.
0: We have access to ancient healing strategies such as ketosis, fasting, and carnivore. And on the Keto Camp Podcast, we are determined to deliver the science to you. We bring in the thought leaders in this space to have extraordinary conversations so you could apply it and change your life. Your body was built to thrive. Your body is capable of healing as long as you identify the interference and remove it. I believe you are a masterpiece because you are a piece of the master. My name is Ben Azadi, I'm the best-selling author of Keto Flex, and I wanna thank you for spending part of your day with me. Hey, Keto Camper, Ben Azadi here, the host of the Keto Camp Podcast. You can learn more about me over at benazadi.com. Today, we welcome back an amazing human being, Dr. Paul Saladino. We've had him on the podcast before, two years ago on episode 87, where we talked all about the benefits of the carnivore diet, the dangers of plant toxins and lectins and oxalates, etc. You know, he's evolved a lot ever since that recording two years ago. We talk about that. And today's episode is actually the longest recording of the Keto Camp podcast we've ever done. There's over 300 episodes already recorded that we released, and this is the longest one we've done. We just had so much fun. We recorded this right before New Year's Eve, the day before, and we had so much fun, we went long. It's worth the listen. I love Dr. Paul's work. He's one of the most brilliant people out there. His research is really spot on. We don't agree on everything on this episode. And I think that's okay. I know that's okay. And we shouldn't always agree on everything. We should have conversations and disagreements. And this is one of those episodes. Now, most of the stuff he shares, I agree with. And it doesn't make me right and him wrong or vice versa. We just have a different viewpoint on a few things. But we do talk about long-term keto and the problems that can occur with long-term keto. Now, I talk about this a lot. I went deep in into this topic with my book, Keto Flex, And I don't want this conversation to discourage you and, and think that keto bad for you. I mean, of course not. Keto is amazing. Ketosis is such an, a powerful, ancient healing strategy, but it's a tool and you got to know how to use tools the right way. So Paul's going to share what happened to him and his health and his lab reports and what he's seen with his patients, with those who stick with keto too long. Sex hormone binding globulin, to testosterone ratios off balance, this persistent physiologic insulin resistance that takes place. We talk about insulin and how insulin is not the bad guy. It's got a bad PR rep. And if you get insulin at the right amount, that's important. We talk about 4-HNE, which is this nasty free radical, 4 hydroxy nonenal, that can have a slow buildup with long-term ketosis. Uh, and then we get into the linoleic acid, Uh, of PUFAs, polyunsaturated fats, vegetable industrial seed oils, and why they're so bad for you. He also gives an amazing breakdown on which oils contain, how much percentage of each oil contains this linoleic acid, how to test for linoleic acid. We talk about the membrane. We talk about hormesis. We talk about plant toxins. We talk about why he loves actually eating fruits now. And he also explains a hierarchy of fruits, vegetables, nuts and seeds from worst to best or I should say to least toxic. And uh, his routine what he goes to these grocery stores w- w- barefoot with a t-shirt that says kale is bullshit. <laughs> and the things he does, he talks about his CGM experiments. He talks about the importance of looking at postprandial glucose versus just the glucose spike from a meal. And then we talk about fish oil. Now, if you've been following my work, you know that I am not a fan of fish oil and I see a lot of health educators promote fish oil, but I don't agree with it. I think it's not good for you and it'll create more problems than good. And I asked Dr. Paul Saladino, hey, this is what I where I stand. This is my viewpoint. What do you think? And you'll get to see his answer. And then, of course, we get into the discussion of why I actually think quality omega-6, unadulterated linoleic acid could support the membrane and how part of the membrane is omega-6 and it is the key to fixing the cell. He doesn't agree with that. So we talk about that. We also are going to... Here's what I'm going to do because I think this is going to be super valuable for you, Keto Camper. I'm going to reach out to my mentor, Dr. Daniel Pampa. I'm going to reach out to Brian Peskin, MIT researcher. And then I'm going to reach back out to Paul. He already said he's down for this. And what I would like to do, and hopefully we could do this very soon is I'll bring Dr. Paul Saladino back. I'll bring Dr. Daniel Pompa on. I'll bring Brian Peskin on and maybe somebody else, maybe Dr. K-, K. Shanahan, and we'll have a discussion on the things we disagree about. Maybe we'll change our minds, or maybe Paul change changes his mind, or, or maybe we come to some sort of, I don't know, agreement. But it's really challenging, and I know you could relate when you have amazing people that you know, like, and trust, hopefully I'm one of those for you, but then they are disagreeing on a few things. So I'm open to changing my mind. I know that Dr. Pomp is, Brian Peskin is, I know Paul is, he's he's done it. So maybe we could have a conversation and see what exactly is the right approach here. Does having plants, this is something we also disagree with. I, I believe that if you have a healthy gut, You could have some vegetables, you could have some plants, and it could act as a hormetic stressor. Paul doesn't really believe that. So maybe we could have a conversation on that as well. Anyways, I'm going to work on getting that episode, uh, that conversation recorded and out to you. And you let me know, hey, if you would like to see that or hear that, leave a rating and review on the Keto Count Podcast and say, I'd love to hear that. Or if you have suggestions of who you want me to bring on the show, to have these sort of friendly conversations. I'm not going to call them debates, but friendly conversations. Email us, support at ketocamp.com. So you're going to love today's episode. We'll put links and references for everything mentioned down below in the podcast notes, courtesy of Rachel on our team. Sit back and enjoy it. Hey, before I get this started with Paul, I want to take a minute here to get to the Apple Podcast rating and review of the day. This is a five-star review from Wolfhound127. Titled, I like all of Ben's content. I found Ben on YouTube, but quickly started watching and listening to all of his content because it is straightforward and simple advice. Ben is not overly dogmatic about the ketogenic lifestyle and approaches it as a lifestyle that can be followed long term. That is exactly right. Perfect, perfect review for today's conversation because that's what we're talking about Not being dogmatic, being open, and looking at this as a lifestyle. Thank you for leaving that review. Wolfhound, if you haven't left the Keto Camp podcast a rating and review, please do so right now on whatever podcast platform you listen to and take a screenshot of it. We'll send you, I'm going to send you a paperback copy of my best selling book, Keto Flex, as a thank you for leaving the show a rating and review. So put your shipping address and email your screenshot of your rating and review to support at ketocamp.com. You know Something else I I forgot to mention is uh, when we get into this conversation (laughs) with Paul, we're going to get into his experience on the doctor's TV show and how it was a complete hit job. If you haven't seen it on YouTube, oh my gosh, go check it out. But he's going to talk about his experience on that show. So we'll get into that shortly. But I I just want you to really take in this information. Uh, I'm really worried here (laughs) about you listening to today's conversation and being discouraged about keto. Please don't be discouraged. Paul sees the benefits of ketosis. So do I, obviously. But we both don't think you should be in ketosis long-term. So there's a way to do this the right way. So don't, please don't feel discouraged. Feel empowered and actually be inspired that you could actually get out of ketosis and go back in, go back out and back in. That's what we want, metabolic flexibility. And we have a lot of episodes teaching that and on my YouTube channel, we teach that on my in my book, Keto Flex, I teach that. So I hope this empowers you and you're going to love Paul. He's so much fun if you haven't heard him before. So uh, without further ado, before we get to Paul, let me just get to the sponsor of today's episode. Here you go. I always say structure trumps intention. You could have all the best intentions in the world, but if you don't have the structure in place, it's going to be very difficult to get the amazing keto and fasting results that you want. If you are on the go traveling and you don't want to think about what can you eat to help you feel satisfied and to help you continue getting results on your keto journey. For me, my structure when I'm on the go, when I'm traveling, and when I want to have something nearby that's a healthy snack, my go-to is Paleo Valley's Beef Sticks. Paleo Valley Beef Sticks are the perfect gut-friendly, clean protein snack for on the go. And if you have children, This is one of the best things to give your kids. These beef sticks are 100% grass-fed and finished by farmers right here in the United States. They contain naturally occurring probiotics, which helps increase the diversity in your gut. It contains organic spices. It has high concentrations of omega-3 fatty acids, elevated levels of conjugated linoleic acid, which we know is an antioxidant and also could enhance your body's ability to burn fat, It contains vitamins and minerals, elevated concentrations of glutathione, which is your body's master antioxidant, and it's good for the environment. They have flavors that range from original to garlic summer sausage, regular summer sausage, jalapeno, teriyaki, and they also have turkey sticks available as well. They taste so good that I usually go through three or four, and I think I might set the record for eating almost 10 Paleo Valley Beef sticks. Maybe somebody out there has eaten more than me in one sitting. You know, me and my fiance, Natasia, we're always fighting over these beef sticks in our house. We go into the pantry and I hear her unwrapping it. And I'm like, hey, are you eating one of my beef sticks? <laughs> They are delicious, and since you are an avid listener of the Keto Camp podcast, we worked out an exclusive deal for you to get 15% off your entire order of Paleo Valley products. All you need to do is head to paleovalley.com and use the coupon code KETOCAMP15 at checkout for 15% off your entire order. That is KETOCAMP15 at checkout. We'll also drop a link down below in the show notes. Okay. Here is Dr. Paul Saladino, MD. Dr. Saladino is the leading authority on the science and application of the carnivore diet. He has used this diet to reverse autoimmunity, chronic inflammation, and mental health issues in hundreds of patients, many of whom had been told their conditions were untreatable. In addition to his personal podcast, The Fundamental Health podcast. Go subscribe to it. Go subscribe to his YouTube channel. He can be found featured on numerous podcasts, including The Minimalist, The Model Health Show, Bulletproof Radio, Dr. Gundry's Podcast, Ben Greenfield, Dr. McCullough Health Theory, Mark Bell, also the Keto Camp Podcast. He was on the Doctors TV Show, which you will see or hear about very, very soon. And here is Dr. Paul Saladino. Dr. Paul Saladino, brother, welcome back to the Keto Camp podcast.
1: What's up, Ben? It's good to be here.
0: Yeah. The last time you were on was actually, I was looking it up two years ago. Exactly. It was December two years ago, uh, episode 87 of the Keto Camp Podcast. Now we're over uh, 350 plus episodes. And ever since that conversation, you've actually evolved. And there's a lot of new information and new research you put out there. And it's super cool to see that first and foremost, because we should always be learning and changing our ways. And we'll get to that. Before we talk about that, Paul, you were recently, I think a year or two years ago, on the Doctor's TV show, which was a total hit job. We were just talking about it offline. How did that get started? Like, how did you even get involved with being on that, the Doctor TV show? And did you know it was going to be a hit job? Like, what was your experience like going into it and then on the show?
1: They don't tell you it's going to be a hit job, that's for sure. <laughs> they uh, definitely don't tell you it's going to be a hit job. So basically, I have some friends, Ashley and Sarah Armstrong who I wrote a cookbook with more contemporarily relevant to this conversation. And the cookbook is coming out in February. It's called the carnivore code cookbook, but rewind two years. They got, I think they were talking online and on their blog about eating raw meat for some of their meals. And the, I think it was the Daily Mail in the UK picked up that story and tried to paint them as extremists. The Daily Mail and these pseudo tabloid news outlets, which we are very familiar with now, uh, Mm -hmm. two plus years into COVID, love these sensational stories. And so the sensational story they tried to pick up about the Armstrong sisters was they're eating raw meat and they claim to have cured their autoimmune disease. So the the actual story, as I could tell it for Sarah and Ashley, is that they both had lupus-like diagnoses. So they had certain antibodies, which are suggestive of lupus, they had lupus type symptoms. I believe at least one of them had the malar rash across their face, they had other joint issues, fatigue. Um, and I think both of them had menstrual irregularities, and I think both of them at that point had potentially lost their regular menses every month. And this was, I think that as part of that process of trying to fix those things, they did vegan and got worse and then eventually found a carnivore diet and many of their symptoms got better. And they had an evolution too, which we can talk about that that in many ways paralleled mine, but the elimination of many of the foods that they were told were so good for them. The vegetables, the plant foods seemed to improve their autoimmunity as well. And they ate some cooked meat and some raw meat. And that, of course, the um, sensationalism wanted to focus on the raw meat. So because the Daily Mail picked up that story, they got contacted by the Doctor's TV show. In retrospect, clearly the Doctor's TV show is looking to do the same thing to paint them as um, eating disordered, psychologically unwell humans who had used this crazy diet that could potentially be hurting them to change their autoimmune disease. Now, Ashley and Sarah said, "Well, we'll go on your show, but we won't go on without Um, Paul Saladino, who was, uh, you know, obviously I was talking a lot about carnivore diets then. I think they had learned some stuff from me, so they wanted me to be there as well. And the doctors, TV show producers, I'm sure just licked their chops at this point and thought, aha, this is even better. We have the doctor, quote unquote, you know, like I I am an MD, but we have the doctor that we're gonna make even a better pillory. We're, we're gonna make an even better voodoo doll out of this guy and you know, pillory him in the, in the square and ask him all sorts of stuff. So I went on the show in person in Los Angeles and they unfortunately couldn't be there. So they were on virtually and on TV. And so the way it all played out was that the closer and closer I got, the more details I got about the appearance. And the first thing I heard from the producer was, oh, well, we're going to, they want it to be a debate. And I thought, that's fine. I've done debates before. I've debated many people now. And even at that point, a couple of years ago, I debated many people. I said, that's fine. Assuming that a debate meant that there would be some sort of a moderator, that there would be uh, an unbiased person or two, and that both sides would be allowed to talk. But of course, this is Hollywood. So the way it actually played out was they had I believe five doctors and one lawyer, and they even brought in a vegan doctor, Joel Kahn, on the TV as another sort of person to argue against my position. They don't place you on the same table with the doctors. The doctors are on a stage and you're in the audience. So I was in like the audience below the doctors with another doctor next to me, and then multiple physicians on the stage with a lawyer on the stage, Joel Kahn, a vegan doctor, via um Skype or via a virtual connection and then Ashley and Sarah via virtual connection and throughout much of the proceedings they were muted so they couldn't actually even chime in or say their opinion or corroborate anything i was saying so,
0: so at what point way, at what point were you like okay this is a hit job like when did it hit you
1: I mean, it's it was it was intense, man. Uh, it was big lights, you know. Like you, you're in this Hollywood stage. There's an audience behind you, which is yeah. cued to sort of do things and clap for the doctors, but not yep. you. So the whole thing is just this swirling pit of of just ignominy that they were directing at me, and it was very immediate. Like within the first. I think that they they introduced the story, they let Ashley and Sarah tell their story a little bit. They tried to paint them as people with eating disorders. And then they, they asked me one question and then it was just, mm-hmm. I was thrown to the wolves and I did the best I could. But um, it was pretty bad. They, they would interrupt me constantly and it's Hollywood. So they cut out pieces of it where I was sort of just throwing my hands up and saying, I'm not even being allowed to talk. You don't see any of that. They get to cut whatever they want. They get to uh, have this coordinated attack where every person has a specific question for you. They question your credentials. It was pretty crazy. So yeah, I, and after the fact, I mean, the whole story that I told about it, this is this is pretty much ancient history, but it's maybe sort of fun to relive, is that after the show, I saw the physician who was sitting next to me in the audience, in in the dressing rooms, you know, backstage. And I said, what the heck was that? You guys railroaded me. And she said, you deserved it. You know, she, these are like her, basically her words. She said, you know, basically handsome, articulate physicians like you come around and they mislead people and they get hurt and, and, and you deserve to be railroaded. And I said, what did I say that was wrong? And she just lost her The security had to be called. Wow. She was yelling at me behind the studio in the street. And of course, this is my version of the story, but I didn't get angry at her, but she was yelling at me and getting super activated. And so security got called to separate us and it was just, it was pretty ridiculous. So she wasn't willing to have any conversations about any of the topics that we'd had on the podcast. I invited her on my podcast to have a debate under a neutral circumstance she didn't respond travis stork who was the main physician on the stage i invited him on my pod he never none of the none of these guys ever showed up for a real debate they just mm-hmm. wanted to sort of throw their hands up and speak in platitudes and say everyone knows X, Y, Z, that, that vegetables are good for humans. And everyone knows that eating meat is bad for humans. And how can you be so stupid? And how can you mislead these women in such an extreme way and, and hurt them? And it it was crazy. I mean, Joel Kahn got to throw in his digs, like, you know, you're all going to get colon cancer later. It's just a bunch of bullshit It was total, typical Hollywood stuff.
0: Yeah. Wow. Well, you handled yourself well, even with, you know, that, those attacks that I watched the YouTube video and, you know, if you go and you, (laughs) yeah, it was it was ridiculous. I mean, they were getting so emotional over it. And I've learned over the years, the person who gets emotional in a conversation, they've lost that conversation. And they were all emotional. They were all acting like kids, essentially. They were very immature. So the YouTube comments on that video are great because everybody's like, oh, the only one who's calm and rational is the guy who eats all the meat. It's the carnivore guy, it's it's Paul. It's, So it's really cool to see all the comments on there because it shows that people saw what was actually happening. So kudos to you though, for, you know, holding your ground and putting yourself out there. I don't know if you would have done that, if you would have known going into it, but either way, I think you handled yourself well. And the fact that they won't come on and debate you and have a conversation, well, that speaks louder than anything else. So good job to you, Paul.
1: Oh, thanks, man. I would do it again in a heartbeat. I mean, Put me back in coach, you know, Let, let's do round two and we'll see what happens here. I'd be ready for the Hollywood BS. And, you know, I would be throwing my hands up and jumping up on stage with them and being like, you need to read these studies. And why don't you guys quote me a single study? Anyway, I, I'll just add this one more piece. So before the, the debate, I had actually sent them a bibliography of, of the studies that I was going to quote. And, you know, that they didn't allow me to do that. But I had, I had like 25 studies that I was you know, sent them ahead of time saying, I'm going to reference these studies and none of that was even used. So yeah, of crazy. course. Yeah. Well, no, of course not.
0: Good, good job too. That would be great TV if they bring you back. So maybe they'll, they'll consider it.
1: <laughs> Many of the people on that show now uh, have been fired. The show was basically canceled shortly after that. And there there is a show, the doctors, but at least in the middle of last year, it was now based on the East coast somewhere with a new host and a different cast. I think Travis Stork has generally moved on to doing whatever Travis Stork does. So I don't Mm -hmm. think the cast is even there anymore.
0: I didn't know that. Well, you'll get the message out. Keep doing what you're doing. We'll have conversations like this. Uh, So thank you for sharing that. Let's transition now. Now, when we spoke two years ago on the show, we talked all about Carnivore. We talked about your book. Uh, It's cool that you have a cookbook coming out. We'll definitely... Is it available for for pre-order right now, Paul? Yeah, it is. So we'll put that link in the podcast notes. It's going to be out February of 2022. I was watching some of your YouTube videos and listening to some of your podcasts and uh, you were sharing some of your lab work. So maybe you could share a little bit about what are some of the things you've noticed when you were strict carnivore and then what did your lab show? And then why did you decide to actually bump up your carbohydrate intake?
1: Yeah, this is so interesting. So in the midst of writing a book about a carnivore diet, I think that it's an interesting journey for me. What I found was that there was something fascinating about eliminating plant foods, but more specifically vegetables, that is the leaves, the stems, the roots and the seeds of plants. And originally when I was doing an exclusively um, meat and organ and fat diet, that's what I would call pure carnivore, I had also excluded fruit from my diet. Now, there were many benefits to that. My longstanding autoimmune disease, my eczema got better, psychologically I felt better. And ketosis in the beginning for me without carbohydrates in my diet seemed fine. And so I was writing this book and I thought there was something to tell people that that potentially there are many of the foods we consider to be healthy leaves like kale or spinach or chard, um, broccoli, Brussels sprouts, stems, seeds, which are seeds, nuts, grains, and legumes. People know about wheat, but also oats and almonds and many of those things I'm not a fan of. And there's something to say here. I think the elimination of these results in better digestion for many people, improvement in autoimmunity, better sleep. And as we saw with Sarah and Ashley, this you know, stark example, sometimes resolution of longstanding recalcitrant autoimmune disease that looks like lupus, which is a serious disease that Western medicine doesn't have any sort of treatment for other than biological medications, which have many, many side effects long-term. So there's something to tell people about here. But as I'm going through that process, I'm about a year and a half into my strict meat, organs, fat, salt diet, and I'm having a little bit of crisis of faith. And it's fun to tell the story because I, I love being authentic with people and I'm experiencing some things and I'm like, what's going on here? So I feel generally pretty good and I'm surfing and living in San Diego, but I get a lot of muscle cramps and I get heart palpitations at night. And I don't know if the libido is different, but when I did my blood work, the sex hormone binding globulin, the SHBG, was just continuing to creep up and up and up and up. And at times it was over 100, 115, 120 and you start to see the thyroid, specifically the free T3, go down, 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 down. The TSH, the thyroid stimulating hormone, isn't changing. The HSCRP remains quite low. So it doesn't look like there's broad strokes inflammation, but hormonal panels were moving in directions that I wasn't quite sure about. Thyroids seem to be going the wrong direction. Subjectively, I felt a little cold. I didn't do what I probably should have done, which was take my body temperature every day and track that. But I have heard anecdotally from people that they do see their body temperature gradually go down a little bit on ketogenic diets when they do them long term. And then my sleep was a little bit disordered. Obviously, I'm going through so much stress because that was kind of the, the apex of everyone is attacking me and saying, you know, there's all these trolls on Twitter and I didn't really understand how to deal with them. And instead of just putting them out of my mind and doing the work that I believed in, it was always this chasing people, being jerks in digital world, which is the worst uh, manifestation of most human psyches. And so it was a very stressful time. And I thought, maybe I'm too stressed. That's why I'm not sleeping well, but I would wake up with my heart racing. And then whenever I would go to the climbing gym and try and climb, I would get muscle cramps. And sometimes when I was out surfing in cold water, my calves would cramp up badly. Most mornings when I would wake up, I would get calf cramps. So there were a lot of things kind of closing in on me. And here I am thinking, I believe there's something valuable about this message, but I'm not feeling great. And at some point the light bulb goes off and I think, okay, if I believe that carbohydrates are so bad, why do I believe carbohydrates are so bad? Are all carbohydrates created equally? What if I reintroduce carbohydrates in my diet? Now, I'm not going to go and eat wheat or, you know, pasta or a pizza. Let's do this intentionally. If I think about plants, is there a less toxic source of carbohydrates that I can begin with? And so I started with honey. At that point, you know, honey some could even argue that it's carnivore because it's made by bees. It's not a yeah. plant food. And I mean, I don't, I try not to be super dogmatic, but you could even make the argument. So I started with honey and immediately, well, I shouldn't say immediately, but very soon after incorporating honey, I, I started to feel better. And that was sort of the light bulb to say, okay, this is quite interesting. Like I can include honey. And I don't feel worse, you know, and it started as probably two or three tablespoons a day. And then it quickly became four tablespoons, five tablespoons a day, over a hundred grams of honey. When that was the only source of carbohydrate that I was doing. And people would look at that and go, you're eating 75 grams of honey or hundred grams of honey a day. That's a massive amount of honey. And I think, well, it's either good for me or it's not. And and these are reasonable doses. And I'm trying to get to hundred grams of carbohydrates to affect my physiology. And so that was interesting, and at that time, I was fortunate to have the access to continuous glucose monitors like they make at NutriSense, and I wore continuous glucose monitors, which is a device that you can put on your arm and it has a little plastic stylet that goes into your interstitial space, and it'll record your glucose every five minutes. So It's pretty close to real-time glucose, maybe even a little more often than that at samples your interstitial fluid, which is reflective of your serum, your blood glucose. And so what you could see when I did honey were a couple of things that were interesting. Thing was that my fasting blood sugar went down. And I'll repeat that. My fasting blood sugar went down. I've seen this phenomenon a lot of times for people now in retrospect, it makes more sense that as people go longer and longer on keto, not all the time, but very often fasting blood sugar goes up, 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 and it can just be creep. It can be 86, 87, 91, 95, 105, 107. There are cases in the strict carnivore community of people having fasting blood sugars that are 126, which is basically diagnostic of diabetes. I don't think that that person had frank diabetes, but you can get very high fasting glucose levels. And so what you see is this fasting blood sugar go up and up and up. I add carbohydrates back and it starts to go bit down. And I have fasting blood sugars in the seventies again. And you think, oh, that's interesting. That seems to be a good thing. And certainly the blood sugar will spike when you include carbohydrates in your diet, especially honey. But what you'd find, what I found, and I've talked about this multiple times on my podcast, which is called Fundamental Health, is that the area under the curve for the blood glucose tracing was very low, the AUC, which is reflective of insulin load. You would get a spike. Maybe my blood sugar would go from 75 to 120 or 130, and then come right back down within an hour. And... Again, many people get worried about absolute blood glucose levels. And this is something I've also argued against. I think there's too much focus on an absolute blood glucose ceiling. Certainly, a 200 or a 180 is probably pathological. But if your blood sugar goes to 140, or 150, even, it's not as big a deal as many people would make it out to be. I really push back at people who try and sell a, an exclusively or a primarily absolute blood glucose threshold as the main metric that people should follow. I've heard people in the health space kind of self-congratulate themselves for eating almond flour pancakes with stevia and sorbitol and saying, my blood sugar didn't go above 95. And I think who cares? Like you didn't get any nutrition in that. You you had almonds, which are full of lectins and phytic acid. You didn't absorb any nutrients. All the minerals got chelated out. You got lectins and other things in there that could be disrupting your gut. You ate sorbitol, which is a sugar alcohol, which is certainly changing your gut flora. And here you are self-congratulating yourself. And this is a preeminent person in the nutrition community just saying, oh, my blood sugar never went above 105 or 110. And that person then goes on in that interview to say, I don't care what you eat as long as your blood sugar stays below 110. And I think that's I completely disagree with that. That's baloney because there are food quality, I think, is much more important than absolute blood sugar levels, regardless. You can see my blood sugar go up, come back down, and my fasting blood sugar stays quite low with the inclusion of honey. Then later I can go back and do many of the same labs that I'd done. And you can see that I don't have any negative effects on my metal stays very low, less than 3.5. I think it was 2.9. My C-peptide less than 0.5. HSCRP remains low. And what else happens? T3, free T3 start to come back up. Testosterone goes up. Total testosterone goes up and SHBG comes down from 120 to 56 with the inclusion of carbohydrates. And okay, that's great. Hemoglobin A1C goes down, right? So my hemoglobin A1C goes from 5.6 or 5.4 to 4.8. So clearly there's differences that are happening here. Now, The last piece I can talk about is the lipids because they change a little bit also with the inclusion of carbohydrates. But So I start to feel better. I feel a little more warm. At the time I was living in San Diego and I was always a little cold. I'm sure many people will be familiar with this phenomenon when they are doing extended fasting. If you're in a place that's semi-cold after you're 24 or 36 hours into the fast, Most of us have woken up just feeling like, man, I'm really cold and I can't get warm unless I go out and do a workout or I go in a sauna. I'm just a little cold. And that's probably reflective of the subjective experience of having a body temperature that's 0.5 degrees lower than it's used to being. You're just a little freezing. And San Diego is a place where you feel that all the time because it's always in that slightly cold perspective. And I think this was probably January or February, this was happening. So lots of things later down the road, I was able to think about this and wrap my mind around including fruit, and then that became easier and easier, and then kind of think more of how this experience could be a learning um, journey for me. As you said in the beginning, I do try to always evolve my ideas, and I don't want to be one of these people who is ossified, who's really a fossil. I think, again, without mentioning names, there are people in the health space who have very successful messages who never changed them or 10 or 15 years. And they've, they, they never admit that they've seen anything to contradict their views. And I try really hard not to be that person and, and to understand that, you can find a piece of something interesting. And then some of your ideas can be uh, not complete and need evolution and need further uh, exploration, but other ideas remain relevant and something should be talked about. So it's been met with mixed reviews, but I think generally people appreciate the fact that I've tried to be honest in my own personal journey and evolve. And I don't think that many of the things that I learned on a strict carnivore diet are invalid because of this evolution in the way I'm thinking. Many of the the common um, trolls on Twitter and Other places love to point out the fact that I wrote a book about the carnivore diet and I now eat fruit, but none of them have read the book to see that in the the, the chapter discussion of a carnivore diet, I actually lay out templates and ways of thinking about a carnivore diet that could be more inclusive to get people there. I think the most important points that I've learned in the journey have been the importance of organ meats, which we so often leave out of our westernized diets, the exoneration of meat, which gets vilified all the time, you know, to your point into your sort of context, the, the values of fasting and intermittent ketosis, but maybe the dangers of long-term ketogenic diets for humans physiologically, and then probably some sort of a consideration of plants on a toxicity spectrum um, rather than a black and white vilification of plants as bad, but you know, there's probably a hierarchy of plants. So I'll pause there and let you jump in and we can go wherever you want.
0: Yeah, that, that was great. Great, fantastic share. So there's a yeah with the trolls on Twitter, on TikTok, I get that as well. You probably get it to like a hundred times what I get, being that you're you know you're the carnivore guy. Same thing with me. I, I have my book Keto Flex, my company's Keto Camp, and people think, oh, he's a dogmatic keto guy. He thinks you should be in keto forever. No, read the book, right? When you actually start looking at my information, at Paul's information, you know that we're flexible in our approach. I I think everything should be viewed from the lens of or hormesis, right? I, I love how you said that. The toxicity spectrum of plants. Like, what can you eat that will yield you a positive result? How could you stay in that hormetic curve, right? Everything should be viewed from that lens, and we all have a different hormetic ceiling. And that's what you're talking about here. So, for somebody who has severe autoimmune disease, like those two women you were referencing, they needed to remove a lot of these stressors. They had a short ceiling, they had to go really strip the carnivore, and then maybe they could build some things back in as they increase their hermetic ceiling. So with keto specifically, I think it's it's an amazing tool. And when you're doing carnivore, you're doing keto because you're going to be in ketosis. Now let's unpack some of the things you said. So starting with number one, you noticed that your glucose, your A1C, you said 5.4, 5.6, your fasting glucose and just overall glucose was elevated. Now I know that the number one priority for the body, the innate intelligence is survival. So my thought process is, why is the body raising glucose when it's been in a long-term ketogenic state? Why do you think that is? Uh, What is this insulin sort of resistance that's happening that's different than the other insulin resistance? Like, Why do you think that the body's doing this, Paul?
1: Yeah, this is a super important question. I'll try to answer it as succinctly and clearly as possible, but it does get a little technical. So I don't like the term insulin resistance. I think metabolic dysfunction is a more precise term. And this is exactly the reason that I don't like saying insulin resistance because there are two types of insulin resistance that are often confused and conflated. The first type of insulin resistance would be something like physiologic insulin resistance. And that is just to suggest that during states of starvation, during states of fasting, during states of carbohydrate deprivation, evolutionarily, humans have evolved a state known as ketosis, which goes hand in hand with something like with essentially physiologic insulin resistance. This is a different milieu. This is a different sort of stew pot of uh, mediators and cytokines than metabolic dysfunction, AKA pathological insulin resistance. So let's talk about the first one um, to start. So physiologic insulin resistance is, essentially what happens when you are ketogenic. Your fat cells are the ultimate arbiter of this. And we know that insulin is not anabolic, but it is anti-catabolic. And this has been shown in many studies. So the signaling of insulin at the level of the fat cells, the adipocytes specifically, prevents the adipocytes from leaking free fatty acids. These are known as NEFAs, non-esterified fatty acids. So when you have an insulin signal, your fat cells say, okay, we are anti-catabolic. We are anti, we're shutting off the leak of free fatty acids from these fat cells to the rest of the body. When you're in ketosis, the insulin levels go so low for so long that your fat cells are always leaking these non esterified fatty acids. And that's not necessarily a pathological thing. What it is, is a those become the precursors of ketones in the liver and other places, and they signal to the muscle that the muscle should refuse the actions of insulin and spare glucose for other organs, which are more dependent on glucose. There is a hierarchy of organ interest in glucose in the human body with the brain, the blood cells, the testes, the adrenals, the kidneys being more interested and more dependent on having glucose from the blood. People that are familiar with your work and ketosis physiology in general will know that we have a constant level and you don't have spikes because you're not eating carbohydrates, but you still have glucose in your blood, oftentimes more at a baseline level than people who are eating carbohydrates. You don't have the the peaks, but as we talked about earlier, I don't worry about the peaks, nor do I think that there's good evidence that the peaks are harmful for humans, but that they're evolutionarily consistent and completely normal. So What you see is for that gut, your muscle stops making the enzymes involved in transporting glucose from the blood to the muscle. These transporters, you stop making the transcription factors involved in all of the downstream processes of uh, glucose physiology, insulin response in the cell because insulin is very low and sparing the glucose for other tissues that prefer it. Now, this is very different in some ways, not in every way, from metabolic dysfunction or pathological insulin resistance. And I think that pathological insulin resistance has been pretty well balanced, but the fat cells are not responding to a state of ketosis. I think that they're responding to evolutionarily inappropriate levels of certain fatty acids in their membrane, specifically linoleic acid. And the products of breakdown of linoleic acid, this acronym is OXLAMS oxidative products of linoleic acid metabolism. We talked about one before the podcast, known as 4-HNE, 4-hydroxynonanol, and there are many others. But what appears to happen, and this is quite fascinating physiology, is that as we eat excess amounts of linoleic acid, and we get more of these oxidative products of linoleic acid metabolism in our bodies, the fat cells, the adipocytes, balloon. They get to be really big. They get hypertrophic rather than hyperplastic. And so they can't divide. And so you get this like you get this problem in the fat cells where they kind of balloon and they start to leak and they start to explode a little bit and just they get bursting at the seams. Whereas normal physiology appears to be that as fat cells get more and more full, they start dividing and they they don't get to this extremely ballooned uh, pathological level. When they start ballooning and cracking and leaking, they not only release. Free fatty acids they release inflammatory mediators, uh, inflammatory cytokines, which further signal to the muscle and other parts of the body to become insulin resistant or to refuse the actions of insulin. But this is a different state because it has this accompanying inflammatory milieu, these cytokines, and it's based on a different thing. There can be plenty of glucose around in this situation. There's no there's no dearth. There's no absence of glucose in the metabolic dysfunction state. It's That insulin is actually high rather than low, so they're completely different physiologies. You have high insulin in metabolic dysfunction, which is why you can pick up this physiology or really um, foresee it happening by checking fasting insulin in, in more and more people. You would see this fasting insulin creeping up and up and up as the peripheral tissues of the body become more and more resistant to its actions because of this inflammatory milieu being leaked from the fat cells. probably. Approximately originally uh, driven by this evolutionarily inconsistent physiology that starts, in my opinion and the opinion of many others, with massive amounts of linoleic acid and its byproducts coming into the body because we are eating things like seed oils and we are eating things potentially like meat that is fed evolutionarily inconsistent diets. I'll just clarify that statement for people. One of the greatest sources of linoleic acid in the westernized diet is actually chicken fat and pork fat. Now, chicken and pork are monogastric animals like humans. The unique thing about monogastric physiology is that we cannot convert polyunsaturated fatty acids like linoleic acid into saturated fatty acids. Ruminants can. So deer, elk, buffalo, cows, bison, these animals can convert polyunsaturated fatty acids into saturated fats. We can't do that. We can't saturate these fatty acid molecules by taking away double bonds. We can add double bonds to molecules in human physiology. We can interconvert monounsaturated fats and saturated fats, but if you have a polyunsaturated fat, we can't really take that backwards into a monounsaturated fat. So that means that in chicken, in pigs, and in humans, the more polyunsaturated fats we eat, the more we accumulate, the more we store. It's a very linear relationship, and there are all sorts of lines of evidence pointing to the culpability or indicating the culpability of linoleic acid in this setting, some of the most compelling, in my opinion, are the fact that the more linoleic acid you eat, the higher your inflammatory mediators go. There's some really stark correlations. Again, this is correlation from which we cannot draw causative inference, but from which we can formulate a compelling hypothesis that there are some really strong correlations between the amount of linoleic acid in someone's fat tissue and their incidence of coronary artery disease. Mm -hmm. Now, we have to be careful there because linoleic acid in fat tissue is the best indicator of consumption of linoleic acid rather than linoleic acid in the blood or in the red blood cell. So we don't do this generally uh, often in humans, but I think that we should do more of this where we should sample linoleic acid in your fatty tissue. But this is sort of getting down a side uh, route, but that's the juxtaposition between insulin resistance physiologic and insulin resistance metabolic dysfunction. I think the terms we should use are, you know, physiologic insulin resistance and metabolic dysfunction. And as I said, there are totally reversible, predictable, calculable ways to avert metabolic dysfunction. We just don't talk about it enough. And I think people get confused and they inevitably eat many foods which lead to this process. Now, I'll just say one thing and then I'll pause. I think a lot of people in the ketogenic and low-carb space see a correlation between the consumption of carbohydrates or the exclusion of carbohydrates and improvements in their physiology. And I do not believe that carbohydrates, which are something I haven't talked about in the sort of circle of insulin resistance yet, I don't believe carbohydrates are the primary driver. I think they are sort of like wood that you throw onto a fire that is already burning that can stoke the fire. In this case, if your physiology for glucose handling sugars uh, is broken because of deeper things starting with cells, probably originally connected with glucose to the fires, you are not going to handle the glucose well at all. And I think that when you remove glucose, or sugars in general, or carbohydrates in general, in that situation, you can find improvements, but that doesn't mean that the carbohydrates cause the problem. I think this is the confusion that many people run into, and they say, okay, you, Paul, were a carnivore, and now you're including fruit and honey in your diet, aren't those going to make you insulin resistant? And as I talked about earlier, we can clearly demonstrate that is not the case over and over and over. So I don't think it's carbohydrates per se. And again, like anything else, we can create a hierarchy of... Uh, carbohydrates for humans. And that's why I started with honey and then fruit. But I think you can draw a pretty clear line in the sand when it comes to grains or processed sugars and say those are probably not great for human physiology. But I don't believe that those carbohydrates are triggering insulin resistance in humans or metabolic dysfunction. I think that they are worsening something that's there, but we have to get to the proximate cause. And that gets left out of a lot of conversations of insulin resistance within ketogenic circles.
0: I want to take a quick break here to share with you about the dangers So we know that cellular health is key for performance and longevity. So I've been taking Pureform every single day. My dog takes it every single day. So does my girlfriend and my mom. This is how much I love the product. If you want to get your bottle delivered to your door, head over to purelifescience.com. Check them out. Order a bottle or two and you'll be amazed by how you feel after taking this just after a few days. That is Pureform. LifeScience.com. Use the coupon code BEN4 to apply a $4 off coupon. That is Ben, B-E-N, and the number 4. International shipping is available. Okay, let's go back into this episode of the Keto
1: Camp Podcast. So when you think about the oils, the ultimate goal, I think, for people is to decrease the amount of linoleic acid in their diet and In order to do that, we have to understand how much linoleic acid is in the foods that we are eating as humans, specifically the oils. So you can rank or you can understand that something like soybean oil has 45 to 50% thereabouts, linoleic acid and go through the seed oils, corn, canola, safflower, sunflower. uh, Many of those are, are quite high. And then you can maybe 20 to 50% linoleic acid. Olive oil is a little better because olive oil has 10 to 20% linoleic acid in it. And then avocado oil will have about the same. But in my perspective, from my perspective, the real heroes of the equation are the animal fats, specifically animal fats from ruminant animals, elk, deer, bison, cows being the main one. So ghee, butter, and tallow, which is rendered animal fat from cows, will have much lower levels of linoleic acid, around 2%. So if you look evolutionarily, I had Chris Kenobi on my podcast, and he's done some really fascinating work in this space asking this question. But if you look at hunter-gatherer diets, they generally have 2% linoleic acid in their diet. They don't eat a lot of high linoleic acid foods. So I think that that's the way to combat it. What we suspect and what we seem to know is that these oils take a long time to... The composition of our cell membranes takes a long time to change. So this is probably why you know metabolic dysfunction takes a long time to develop and why it takes a longer time to heal. And as we hinted at earlier, as people are healing it, certainly a low-carbohydrate approach can be helpful. But ultimately, I think that you have to change the composition of the oils in your diet favoring monounsaturated and saturated fats in favor of linoleic acid an omega-6 polyunsaturated fatty acid to allow those membranes to change long-term. Does that make sense? It makes sense.
0: And the half-life of these PUFAs, linoleic acid, in our fat cells is what, about two
1: years, Paul? That's what you see in the literature. I don't think we really know. I mean, two-year half-life would mean that it would take 10 years. You know, We think of pharmacologically four and a half half half-lives to get a drug out of your system. So if the half-life is two years, it's going to take four years to get 75% out and That's a very long time. So maybe it's not quite that long. I hope it's not quite that long, but I don't think we know. It's certainly the half-life of these fats in our cell membranes doesn't look like it's a week, unfortunately.
0: And uh, Dr. Kay Shanahan, who has been a leading force talking about these PUFAs, she was on the show recently, but she was talking about how that's why when you lose a lot of weight really fast, you feel awful. And it's probably not a good idea because you get this release of the linoleic acid in the bloodstream.
1: Yeah, I wonder. It's an interesting possibility. I think when you are losing a lot of fat, all of those adipocytes, all those fat cells are going somewhere and a lot of that's going to go in your blood and could cause damage a lot of places. So it is a a challenging thing. And we see that with a lot of things. Actually, anecdotally, this is sort of related. Oxalates may be the same thing that there's this phenomenon that appears to be something like oxalate dumping when people remove or stop eating oxalates and they get a big dump of oxalates from their system. That's kind of a crazy thing too. When I was in the carnivore space, or I guess I'm still in the carnivore space, but you did hear occasionally of people getting oxalate kidney stones. Calcium oxalate kidney stones are the main type of kidney stone that that humans get. And I think that the, the major driver there is high oxalate containing foods like spinach or beets or beet greens, which are essentially charred. But when people go carnivore, sometimes they'll have a hyperoxyluria. They'll have lots of oxalates in their urine. I think that's probably a dumping phenomenon. So that's a strange thing. I did an episode on my mm-hmm. podcast with Sally Norton where we talked about that. There are a few ways to mitigate that, but I think that there is this sort of this storing up of semi-toxic things in the human body, whether that's fats that aren't really great for our physiology or are not evolutionarily consistent or oxalates or even heavy metals have the same type of pharmacokinetics when we release them. So yeah, I think all of this probably needs to be undertaken with a professional and done gradually. Um, Some people may want to go more quickly, but proceed with caution. So linoleic acid,
0: omega-6, it's a polyunsaturated fat. Poly, meaning many, has uh, many double bonds, which makes it more inflammatory because it could attract oxygen and, and create oxidation, similar to biting into an apple, leaving it on the counter, and it turning brown, oxidation, Rust on Piper, etc. Besides the double bonds that are in the linoleic acid, what else makes them inflammatory? Like, is that the main reason they're inflammatory because of the number of double bonds, or is there something else that
1: is up there with that? You know, this is a great question. I don't think we fully understand this physiology. Certainly, we we talked about these oxalams, these oxidative products of linoleic acid metabolism for HNE and others. And it, it does appear that when we eat more linoleic acid, you can find more oxidized LDL. This has been shown in interventional studies that when you decrease the amount of saturated fat and you include linoleic acid-rich polyunsaturated fats in the diet, you will find more oxidized LDL and more LP little a, which is probably a particle like LDL that is involved in, well, it's, it's a particle, it's an LDL particle, it's an ApoB containing particle that probably has a job in the human body of mopping up oxidized phospholipids, even oxidized phospholipids on low-density lipoprotein particles. So certainly the oxidation and the instability of linoleic acid is one of the problems. But I think that the more that I learn about this, at least the more that I think there could be some potentially hormonal roles for linoleic acid that are negative as well. And this is what I was hinting at with regard to the adipocytes, the fat cells. This is a quite a quite a complex rabbit hole. There are people like um, Peter Dobromilski from Hyperlipid who's written about this phenomenon of sort of the reactive oxygen species theory around this and the fact that a lot of insulin sensitivity signaling has to do with the FADH to NADH2 ratio in humans, and that has to do with the number of double bonds in a molecule at the level of the mitochondria. And so, without going deep down that rabbit hole, I think there are other problems with linoleic acid as well, potentially. I've talked about this with Chris Kenobi as well in my podcast. If cardiolipin becomes enriched in linoleic acid, does that destabilize membranes? Is there a fluidity issue in the membranes? Because the the more double bonds a lipid has, the more sort of kinks, the more bends it has in its tail and your body has to change the membrane in certain ways. So there are many reasons that I think these fatty acids can be bad for humans. I am not convinced that the oxidative um, propensity of them is the only reason. I think there are other reasons, but uh, I think, like I said, they could even have hormonal effects in the human body, pseudo hormonal effects. But if they are changing the way that fat cells signal and fat cells respond to things like insulin and fat cells release inflammatory mediators or fat cells release non-esterified fatty acids, then that's a whole separate ball of wax that could be going on there. I think that the underlying thing to consider here is what is an evolutionarily appropriate diet for humans? Some would argue that there are many evolutionarily appropriate diets for humans. I think there's some validity to that statement. And I believe that um, we must be careful with that. And I think that you could make a strong argument that, that the amount of linoleic acid that we consume now as humans Stephen uh, Goyene has done a great paper on that um, that's widely available we consume much more linoleic acid than we do than we have evolutionarily now uh, on the order of you know probably five to ten times as much linoleic acid leading to 10 to fifteen percent of the United States diet or Western diets are now made up of linoleic acid that's a large amount compared to two to three percent and so when you find these evolutionarily inconsistencies, I think we have to question how well adapted our, our human physiology is to that on many levels. So the mechanistic sort of pathways for linoleic acid are fascinating, but ultimately, I think that it's a very evolutionarily inappropriate thing to be eating in large amounts, like so many other things. And that would be that's the entire reason that I think a carnivore diet or a carnivore-ish diet is important to consider as well. And we can go down this rabbit hole or go wherever you'd like next. But you know, is is eating a bunch of kale, uh, is eating a lot of spinach, is eating a bunch of Brussels sprouts or bee greens evolutionarily consistent either. Paleo folks would say yes, I would say no, and therein lies the the crux of the discussion for that side of it as well.
0: I wanna talk about one thing because I'm really curious to hear your thoughts on this. You mentioned Double bonds in omega 6 PUFAs, which is one of the many reasons why they could be inflammatory inside the body. And you also talked about, you know, an evolutionary mismatch with consuming these, especially in high amounts and even kale and other foods. Now, here's where I want to ask what I want to ask you, because I've been talking about this one thing and a lot of other health people in our space don't really agree with me. I was just on Ari Witten's podcast and we had a friendly discussion about this fish oil. Okay. Fish oil has more double bonds than all of those oils that you mentioned, meaning it could become even more oxidative. And when we think about the brain, uh, an adult uh, requires about 7.2 milligrams of EPA and DHA every single day. One capsule on average of fish oil is 1,000 milligrams of EPA and DHA. So that's a huge evolutionary mismatch in itself. And I've also seen some research. You talked about the fluidity of the membrane and cardiolipin. I've seen that with too much fish EPA and DHA. And I've seen a whole bunch of studies and there are studies that show fish oil could help you. There are studies that show fish oil will not do anything. But if you look at the Cochrane Collaboration, they looked at all the best studies and said, it's not really going to do anything for you and actually could hurt you. So what are your thoughts on fish oil? Do you uh, lean towards what I'm saying here? Are you against or or for it? Or or what are your thoughts on it?
1: Yeah, this is a great question. So there's the sort of hyperlipid Peter Dobromilski perspective, which I tend to lean toward because of the evolutionary bias, that massive amounts of omega-3 fatty acids are probably not that great for humans either for a variety of reasons. And you know, people will tout the benefits of omega-3 fatty acids without really discussing the fact that often the benefits of those fatty acids are seen in epidemiology. So they're associated with benefits. And we know these can be very misleading studies. So in terms of mechanisms, what we do know is that omega-3 and omega-6 share the same pathways of desaturation and elongation. And so I think that some of the benefits that we see interventionally in the literature for the omega-3s is that when you are eating a lot of omega-6s, the excess omega-6 can prevent the endogenous formation of omega-3s in the human body. And so I think that in a society who is drenched in omega-6, giving some omega-3 can be helpful because we know that these fatty acids, specifically DHA, DPA, and EPA are essential for the formation of neuronal cell membranes, all cell membranes, the brain, the glia, etc. So I think that we get misled into thinking that more fish oil is better because we give fish oil to people who are drenched in omega-6 fatty acids and we probably circumvent a roadblock in their uh, metabolic pathway to make the omega-3s. But I'm not of the opinion that massive amounts of fish oil are necessary or good in any way, shape, or form for humans. Evolutionarily, there were so many people living without access to marine animals. And if you know anything about the marine landscape, if you kill a fish and you put it on a beach... It goes rancid and smells like shit almost immediately. Fish oil spoils so freaking yeah. quickly and so fish much. Fish oil,
0: it's the- it's antifreeze for the fish.
1: Yeah, yeah, and it's it it spoils very very quickly. These oils are so fragile, and we're putting them in capsules, and we're presuming that they're not oxidized. And then, you know, a lot of fish oil that people take now is in a bottle of fish oil and it's just open to the air. And maybe you put it in your fridge, but you have a dropper full of fish oil that then you're putting into your body. That is highly oxidized. I've seen the certificates of analysis of all the major fish oil companies and the lipid peroxide percentages are five plus percent in these things. That's a significant amount of oxidation products already in these fish oils. So this is actually a really interesting thing that I haven't talked about a ton, but I don't do fish oil I haven't really even done egg yolks much in the last maybe a year, year and an, like eight, six, eight months. So and that's just to say that I don't have many direct sources of EPA and DHA in my diet other than ruminant animal fat, like a tallow, right? But what's interesting is that tallow actually has an omega-3 in it called alpha-linolenic acid, which is sometimes thought of as a plant-based omega-3 what i found fascinating when i looked at my fatty my essential fatty acids was that i had lots of epa and dha even though i don't have a lot of epa and dha in my diet directly i don't really eat fish because so much fish is full of mercury and other metals and that's not to say it all is but much of it is i just don't eat a lot of fish i just decided that i'm an inland hunter gatherer even though i live at the beach right now if i could get really good fish i would eat it on occasion but i don't eat lots of fish so i don't have lots of epa and dha in my diet i don't supplement with fish oil i haven't for probably over five years at this point. I don't have egg yolks, which are a source of EPA and DHA. So the only place I'm getting omega-3s is essentially from ruminant animal fat. And what I found was that presumably that there's a little bit of EPA and DHA in ruminant animal fat, but I think my body is also able to convert and change the alpha linolenic acid into the EPA and DHA it needs as it should. This is my theory, but I think it's backed up because I don't have an excess of omega-6s in my diet. So I think that we conflate a partial benefit of omega threes by bypassing an omega six roadblock and telling everyone that we should eat tons and tons of omega three in our diet. So, this is actually really sticky literature for people. But I just I'm not convinced that the omega threes are that beneficial or that we should be pumping ourselves full of them. I would challenge these people who are proponents of omega three to look at their oxidized LDL, to look at their LP little a plus and minus fish oil, to look at other metrics that might tell them whether this is actually something they want to be eating or not. I mean, many people have. I'm trying not to name names in this podcast, but I mean, there's big proponents of fish oil who are say they're, who just, you know, gleefully purport that they're taking, you know, five, six grams of fish oil a day because Japanese individuals eat that much and they're healthy. And it's just an association, right? But we can't actually say that that's causal. And again, evolutionarily, for millions of years, there have been millions and millions of humans that had no access to coastal foods. And did just fine on land animals. Whether you're talking about, you know, the Cherokee or you know, inland Native Americans, and you can say, oh, they traded. Well, the, you know how well fish is going to stay over long trade routes. Like you're not going to get much fish in these in these trade routes. So maybe you get a little iodine. But again, it's a, it's an interesting thing that I think we've generally got wrong. And again, it, it just comes back to context is everything, right? Who is the person that is eating this fish oil? Show me the person that is not eating excess linoleic acid that actually benefits from tons of omega-3 at evolutionarily inconsistent levels. So I don't do it. I don't think humans need it. I think that your body can make it. You know, you need some omega-3, that is true. But if you get alpha linolenic acid plus a moderate amount of EPA and DHA in ruminant animal fat, that is tallow, and you don't have lots of omega-6, guess what? You will make EPA and DHA and it'll be just fine.
0: Yeah, well said. You know, a lot of people don't really get that the body can make its own fish oil, if you will, EPA and DHA. To your point, um, me too. I stopped taking fish oil probably five or six years ago, just like you. It's not a really popular message in our space. A lot of people are still promoting it. It's been adopted by the big food pharma companies. Uh, fish oil has it's a it's a billion dollar industry. I know one name. I'm not going to say the person's name, but they have their own crow oil factory. And you know, when you're that deep into the game, I mean, it's hard to say. Wait a minute. Now, if you're going to do fish oil, right, there might be a time and place for it. Maybe you get a great brand that's krill oil that has astaxanthin, a little bit less EPA and DHA. And at the same time, you're lowering your omega 6 and doing it short term. There might be some argument to be made by that. Even with that, it's so fragile. Fish oil is EPA and DHA when it mixes with your body temperature and stomach acids. Like, what is happening after that? That's the question. So for me, I'm like you, Paul. I'll get it from, I'll let my body get it from making its own way by eating the derivative. So, whether it's beef tallow or something else, I will eat fish from time to time. But, like you said, there's a cause for concern for mercury. So, maybe taking like a binder before your seafood could help. But I, I love having a conversation because uh, not a lot of people uh, are open to kind of having this conversation with fish oil. They, uh, are usually on the side of of pro omega three uh, D- EPA and DHA, so I'm, I'm happy to hear you're uh, a little bit more on this side
1: with me. I'm not a fan, and I'll just I'll mention something else that comes up for me when we're talking about that same paradigm, and this is uh, L methylfolate and I think that we've people have gotten clued into this recently with homocysteine levels, and and there are many people taking L methylfolate because they have MTHFR. Polymorphisms. And if this goes over people's heads, just fast forward to this part. But there is an enzyme in the human body, methylene tetrahydrofolate reductase. And many have polymorphisms. And this enzyme, myself included, I have a 677 C to T polymorphism. And so for the longest time, I thought that I had to take L methylfolate, which is the product of MTHFR. But then I realized that if I got enough riboflavin in my diet, there's some fascinating research. If you get enough riboflavin, which I think most of us are deficient in, riboflavin is really an allosteric control on MTHFR. And if you get enough riboflavin, that for many people who have polymorphisms in the MTHFR enzyme, you need more than the RDA of riboflavin. So maybe one to two to three milligrams per day of riboflavin. When you get that much riboflavin, even someone with a polymorphism in MTHFR, and I am homozygous 677C to T, that MTHFR will function normally if you're just getting enough riboflavin in your diet. And I think it just speaks to this issue that your body can make a lot of these things and allowing your body's enzymatic systems with all of the built-in checks and balances to do it is better than circumventing those things. But you must give your body an evolutionarily consistent context in which to do it. In this case, it's riboflavin, which is another fascinating story if you go a layer deeper down the rabbit hole, which is the fact that riboflavin isn't really that high in muscle meat. It's only really found in liver and heart and good luck getting enough riboflavin if you're not eating organs. Yet another reason that I'm such a fan of organ meats. It just goes back to this idea, and this is what's fascinating when I see the same patterns arise in, in nutrition. And I love how it connects the dots with anthropology. I went to visit the Hadza this year in Tanzania, and they always eat nose to tail. And I've been saying that humans have always been eating nose to tail, but here I was in, in Tanzania, sitting shoulder to shoulder with hunter-gatherers who have direct lineage to probably some of the first humans on the planet in Tanzania and this sort of step in, you know, in this Lake Yasi region of Africa, and they're eating baboon brains with me and kidney and liver and heart. And they're, they're not throwing that away. They're eating every single organ in that animal. And I think there's, there's really elegant beauty in that. And a lot of things come together for us when we just do. And I think that's why it's so important to understand and try and create these mental time machines and say, how have our ancestors always done it? We're never going to get it perfect, but I think it's important to ask those questions. And we learn so much from these things. And you know, to my earlier points, I will say that you know the Hadza also don't go out looking for salads. <laughs> they don't eat leaves unless they're starving. They're going to go and hunt an animal and eat the animal. And they're going to eat honey when they find it. And they do it with relish. They do it with glee. And they go hard on the honey. And they're going to eat fruit when it's in season. And if they are starving, they might pick some pumpkin leaves. And the most available thing for the Hadza are these tubers. But I'll tell you what, they taste like shit and you spit out most of the fiber because you can't even digest it, and the Hadza do the same thing. They This is going to sound sexist, but the men are so disinterested in tubers, they generally leave that job to the women, and the men will eat them, but then they're just like, oh, whatever, they'll eat a couple of tubers, and they'll spit most of the stuff out because you can't even chew this fiber. So, people like frank marlowe who's a phd anthropologist have done papers on this but within the last remaining hunter gatherers on the planet there is a clear hierarchy of foods and this was the kind of thing that was going in my mind you know as i was transitioning out of carnivore and into foods like fruit and honey meat is clearly the first thing that men and women think about. They dream about meat. That's the best thing in their diet. And by meat, I mean meat and organs. And then they think about honey and berries and fruit. And then all else failing, they'll go to vegetables like tubers. And then all else failing with that, they might eat a leaf or grind up some seeds. But generally, these are not a big part of their diet. And that's the kind of stuff that's so interesting to me and starts to kind of at least generate hypotheses. Like maybe we've got the wrong idea about where we've come from as humans and what's really going to turn on Our evolutionary program in the right way.
0: Yeah, fascinating. And that was really interesting about the riboflavin. I didn't know that. So uh, that's good to know. Higher in liver and heart, not so much in muscle meat. You have a product for those who can't really um, consume or they don't like the taste of uh, organ meat. Could you share a little bit about your product and where they can
1: get it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I thought of my mom and my sister as I'm going through the process of thinking about these organs and I'm eating liver every day and heart. And you know, more recently, I've gotten into organs like testicle or brain. And I'm thinking, my mom and my sister are never going to eat this stuff, my dad. So I built a company called Heart and Soil. And it's kind of a play on the words. We only source from grass-finished, regeneratively raised animals. But we take New Zealand cows and we can freeze dry the organs and put them in a capsule for people if they want to get the organs that way. And of course, fresh organs are the best. And if you can't or won't do that, it's pretty nice to have some desiccated organs in your life. It really makes it easy when you're traveling, or just to fill in the gaps. And so, it's great. I was just home for Christmas, and my sister has the capsules, and will like mix them into smoothies for her kids. Or, you know, she can take the organs every day. My mom is always asking me, "Hey, Paul, can you send me more of beef organs or more of this one?" Because she feels a difference now, and she takes it versus she doesn't. So, it really makes me feel good about just providing something that people can get that will sort of help them bridge this gap because. I mean, heart's pretty good. If you put heart on a grill, it can be pretty good. But liver is an acquired taste. 99.9% of people will never eat uh, a bull testicle or an ovary or a brain in their life. And they're all beneficial things for humans.
0: Where can they uh, get the Heart and Soil products?
1: Oh, you can just check us out at heartandsoil.co. It's .co. Awesome. We'll put that in the podcast
0: notes as well. And yeah, your, your TikTok videos are doing so well because it shows you actually like eating... Bull testicles, and it's funny. You show up sometimes on my for you page, and I see I'm like, oh, it's Paul, and you're at Whole Foods saying, I don't know, kale is bullshit. You have a shirt that says kale is bull. Peppers are bullshit. You have somebody filming you. It's a, uh, it's fun to watch. What is your uh, TikTok handle
1: again? Is it Carnivore MD? It's Carnivore MD two point um, which is what the Instagram is now because we live in a digital age of censorship. And I, I was previously talking uh, what I believe to be truth about. Uh, our current viral pandemic and Instagram decided to delete me. So I, I try to focus on nutrition, not <laughs> get deleted
0: again. Yeah. yeah. You, know, you know, speaking of like what's happening um, in the world, Dr. K. Shanahan said that, because I, I asked Dr. K. Shanahan, if these vegetable oils are so bad for us, PUFAs, et cetera, which we know that they're so bad for us. It's I meaning the writing's on the wall. We see it with research. I've seen it just clinically working with people as well. Why are there still dietitians and nutritionists and, and conventional doctors promoting it? I mean, when I post videos on my TikTok on PUFAs, it gets the most views and then I get these these dietitians duetting me saying that I'm you know some sort of um, misinformation machine. So Dr. Kay Shanahan says, well, they're looking at research that has been funded by the American Heart Association. And she said, she didn't hold back. She said the American Heart Association is the biggest form of fake news media in the United States and they're looking at bad research, and they're getting donations of over a billion dollars a year from big food and big pharma. So that's why there's a big, big disconnect. Have you seen that as well with the dietitians coming after you, Paul?
1: Oh, yeah, there's people doing that on Instagram now. And yeah. it's it's an interesting phenomenon. I don't read the comments on TikTok. I'm sorry if anybody follow me is on TikTok. Like TikTok is, as we talked about, it's a great way to reach people and there's just this ethos on TikTok. It's like a competition to see who can nag you the best on your comments. It's like, it's crazy how much trolling there is on TikTok. I've never seen anything like it. It's but the most my, than any other platform. Yeah. Uh-huh. My hope is just that people benefit, that amidst the storm of trolling on TikTok, people will find benefit and dig into content other places. So I don't read any of that stuff on TikTok. But I have had people send me some stuff, people duetting my is bull**** little rant at Whole Foods and things like this. And I think it's fine. Like they can say that. It's just, it's frustrating because they're going to give their side of the opinion and then it looks like they had the last word, but then you could come back and maybe do at them and be like, actually, these studies are bullshit because of these things and they, I don't think they would do another. You could just go back and forth and maybe that's how debates happen. But at some point, the video would become so freaking cumbersome that you couldn't even watch it. But yeah, I mean, there's a lot of, there's a lot of craziness going on in the research world. That's why you and I both do what we do is that if it were just simple and you could just look at a study and you could just say that's exactly what's good for humans and this isn't, then we wouldn't be doing this work. But there's so much confusing stuff out there. I mean, I debated uh, Joel Furman on my podcast and you know, he's he's pointing to all these epidemiology studies and you know, a lot of the studies in favor of of seed oils or epidemiology or people are going to point out like, "Oh, seed oils lower your LDL." But what they're not going to tell you is that yeah, I mean the epidemiology might be good for seed oils, but that doesn't mean seed oils are good for humans. Are people who are eating seed oils more likely to have other healthy behaviors, which sort of ameliorate some of the bad effects of seed oils. And then we know that lowering LDL with seed oils, I referred to this study earlier, leads to increased Ox LDL and LP little A, and people won't tell you that. So it's become this phenomenon where people can can give a hot take on your stuff without actually letting you respond and without actually talking about the entirety of the data. So it's a strange world, man. It's a strange world. It is,
0: yeah. It's a it's an interesting movie we live in, and some people are watching totally different movies. <laughs> they see something totally different. Uh, I, I want to kind of make the the case for omega six, if you will, right? So we talked about how bad they are for you, but I don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. When we look at the the membrane, the cell membrane, um, which I think. I, I believe the intelligence of the cells is actually mostly in that membrane and it dictates a lot of what's happening around the cell, with the DNA nucleus, et cetera. The membrane is actually mostly omega more omega-6 than omega-3. I, I believe 28 to 30, 33% omega-6. So with that being said, and maybe you could correct me if you've seen differently. With that being said, is there a case to be made, and I do make this case, that consuming unadulterated omega-6 actually could benefit you, like sunflower oil that has been organic, non-GMO cold pressed that's stable is there a case to be made for these
1: unadulterated omega 6 see i don't i don't think so i think you'd want to be real careful with that because you're quickly going to press those membranes to evolutionarily inconsistent levels of those fatty acids so i think that like we talked about earlier it's more than just the oxidation that is a problem i think that there's something pseudo hormonal that's happening when you change the composition of those membranes and unadulterated sunflower oil is still going to be massively more uh, linoleic acid than we would have gotten as humans. You can think we would never would have had access to that amount of sunflower seeds, nor would we have wanted to eat them. And how much of that oil would you have absorbed with all the fiber in the sunflower seeds? So you can do the conversions, you know, two tablespoons of corn oil is equivalent to something like I don't know, it's like eight ounces of corn or 10 ounces of corn or something. I'm just kind of back of the envelope talking about that. But you know, two tablespoons of sunflower oil would be massive, multiple handfuls of sunflower seeds. So that's the problem with these oils is they allow you to concentrate these things and create this inconsistent environment for the human body. So I wouldn't even do sunflower oil for that reason. I I think you want to Push your linoleic acid consumption as low as possible. And like we said, you know, the human body is pretty good at these things. The human body can't make omega six, but there's omega six in everything. You know, there's omega six in ruminant animal fat. And I think you get plenty of it in that context. And you actually want to be on the low side. Now, I haven't seen the study you're talking about, but if you send it to me offline, I can comment and we can add maybe something to the show notes or do a part two or something. But my suspicion is, do you know that the the linoleic acid composition of mother's breast milk changes based on their dietary consumption? And so historically, when we have made formulas for infants, we have looked at the general average of linoleic acid in mother's breast milk, and it's around 15 or 20%, which is complete bullshit right? Because we know that if you look at the hunter-gatherers, their linoleic acid in the breast milk is much lower because they're eating so much lower breast milk. Now, they're eating so much lower linoleic acid in their diet. I'm not a fan of formula for babies in general, but we've made this mistake over and over that we're, we're essentially swimming in dirty water. We have a an incorrect context and we get fooled into thinking. And so my question is, Whose membranes were they measuring that were twenty four plus percent linoleic acid in the cell membrane? This is just a hypothesis. Is it possible that when you change the amount of linoleic acid in your diet, this is exactly what we're talking about—that that is going to go down? And what if we measured a Hadza or just you know a the epitome of someone that has a low linoleic acid diet? Then what would the omega six be in their fatty acid membranes? You know, in the cell membranes. Yeah, good question. You know, I would
0: love for you to have a conversation with uh, my mentor, Dr. Daniel Pompa. Are you familiar with Dr. Daniel Pompa? Uh,
1: peripherally, yeah.
0: Yeah, um, he's familiar with your work. I think you guys would have a great conversation. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell him to bring you on his show. Maybe you could bring him on your show. He, he's absolutely... I think he actually is the most brilliant person in the health space. And uh, I think you would, he understands cell membrane composition very, very well. And you would have some really good conversations with him. So I'm just planning that. see Dr. Dan Pompa is his name. I'll send you the study on the membrane... I don't remember off the top of my head when that study was done and and who specifically it was done on because you make a fair point. You know, if it's somebody who's following a high linoleic diet already, they naturally are going to have higher levels. But is that the way we were designed to be? I don't think so. You don't think so. If you're anything like me, you spend a lot of money on supplements each month. Have you ever thought these supplements are actually working for you? Are they attaching to your receptor sites and helping your cells do a specific job? What if you're not getting enough minerals? Or what if you have too much of something creating an imbalance in other minerals? Knowing this will not only save you money, but it'll also improve your health so you could balance out the vitamins and minerals that you really need. With that being said, how the heck do you know if you have a mineral imbalance? What I'm bringing you today is a chance to accurately test all of that at the comfort of your home. In this case, I'm talking about my friends over at Upgraded Formulas and their Upgraded Hair Test Kit and Consultation. When you discover the truth here and what's going on with your body, you can vanquish any of those hidden deficiencies that are affecting your metabolism, thyroid, adrenals, mental performance, endurance, strength, and sleep, just to name a few. I've had Barton Scott on the show before, and he gave a masterclass on minerals. How this works is simple. You are sent a test kit, and you use some of your hair. You just cut off a short piece of your hair. It could be on your head or pubic hair. You send it back to them, and they have your results. They also offer a consultation to go over your results with you. It's simple. It's effective. And it's one of the best tests to know if what you're doing is working for you or not. If you'd like to get your hands on their deficiency test and consultation, head to UpgradedFormulas.com. Use the coupon code KETOCAMP15 to receive 15% off your entire order. That is UpgradedFormulas.com. Use the coupon code KETOCAMP15 at checkout. We'll also drop a link down below. Now, the point about eating two tablespoons or consuming two tablespoons of sunflower oil, that's a lot of sunflower seeds to have. It's um, evolutionary mismatched. I get that. I agree with that. But what if somebody's doing it strategically where they're having, I don't know, one teaspoon once a week or they're having a small amount of unadulterated omega-6? Do you think we should avoid all omega-6 or do you think there is maybe a time and place for some unadulterated omega-6 fats?
1: Well, I I think that you'll get plenty of omega-6 fats in tallow and ghee. So just eating the animal fats is, is yeah, what you you'll would Yeah, you get do. plenty. I mean, I, it's not like ruminants have zero. They have 2%, which I think is the evolutionarily consistent level of linoleic acid that we would have been exposed to. Like I said, the hods don't eat seeds that often. Unless they're starving, there's really none of it in their diet, and you could say, "Oh, the Ikung they eat the uh, the mongongo nut." But then you have to look at the anthropology and the fact that so many of their hunting grounds have been destroyed or encroached upon. Have they always eaten that much mongongo nut? Is it just a recent adaptation of the the Ikung in Botswana and Namibia and the, the Ikung? You know, like they're getting excess linoleic acid because of the mongongo nut, but. I've talked about this with Mickey Bendor on my podcast. These hunter-gatherers are the best representation we have of human history, but they're not perfect. And certainly in Tanzania and the Lake Yasi region, there are Datoga and Maasai who are encroaching on the Hadza hunting grounds. And so they are hunting smaller and smaller animals, which is a problem for them. They can't get the animals that they need to hunt. And so when the missionaries come by with cornmeal and seed oils, they accept them. And when I left the Hadza in Tanzania, they said, you know, the next time you come back, you're welcome. Just bring us bring us cornmeal and I kind of like shook my head and I thought well we're losing them right I mean they they want to hunt and I thought well maybe I'll bring you some meat instead and they said yeah bring us meat and cornmeal because the cornmeal doesn't spoil and they just they can't live they want to be hunter gatherers but they've been adulterated and so there there is this question of are you know we can try with it, Kung, but the Haza I think are a little bit closer to being hunter gatherers. And this Mongongo nut question is just something I address, you know, sort of as a caveat peripherally. But I think that my impression uh, is that we don't have a perfect time machine, but I don't think our ancestors were eating a lot of nuts. They're really hard to get. You have to crack them. They're not that great. They're generally bitter. Most of the nuts we think of today, like almonds, were previously poisonous. We've hybridized them and crossbred them, so nobody was eating almonds 100,000 years ago. I'll tell you that much. And you don't eat apple seeds because they're poisonous. And so most of the things we think of as nuts and seeds are poisonous cousins. They have poisonous cousins, and we're just fooled by what's in the grocery store.
0: Yeah, well said. Um, let's do a little bit of a checklist, and we could go through this real quick of you know y- your hierarchy of your favorite fru- fruits to eat, you know, for in general versus the worst fruits to eat. And then we'll do the same thing with nuts and seeds. You know, I know that you probably think we should avoid them all, but if there was a hierarchy, what are the better ones versus the worst ones? And then let's do the same thing with
1: vegetables. So with fruits, what are your favorite fruits versus the worst fruits? You know, I think we can make this more simple than that. Um, depending on when this podcast comes out, we're doing an Animal Based 30 challenge. So we're doing a 30-day animal-based challenge at Heart and Soil. People can go to animalbased30.com to sign up. We'll send you a free infographic and an ebook. But on the infographic, I've kind of laid it all out. I really think that the vast majority of fruit is fine for humans. The one exception might be the fact that If you're eating a fruit and you're getting a lot of seeds as you're eating that fruit, like a raspberry or a blackberry or a kiwi, understand that those seeds come with potential problems. In the case of raspberries and blackberries and kiwis, those seeds come with oxalates that are in higher amounts than other fruit. So that's something to think about. Like if you're only getting blackberries, then you're eating a lot of blackberry seeds and you're probably getting more oxalates. So the the most broad strokes hierarchy I would conduct or I would create for fruit is eat the lower oxalate fruit, which is almost every fruit except raspberries, blackberries, kiwis, the fruit that you're automatically eating the seeds with. I don't think blueberries are that high in oxalates off the top of my head. But you know, one of the things you can do with a kiwi, which won't leave much of the kiwi for you, is you can scoop out the seeds and just eat the flesh between the skin and the seeds if you really want that. The, most of the oxalates are around the seeds in the kiwi apparently. But I think most fruit is fine. I'm in Costa Rica, so we have local organic papaya, banana, pineapple, Um, mango I don't love because it has kind of that urichial oil on it. It sometimes bothers my mouth if I don't cut it just right. But I would say eat the fruit that you enjoy that doesn't bother you. Um, What about avocados
0: and uh, olives?
1: Oh yeah, absolutely. Those are fine. So definitely those are fruit that people don't always think of. And again, to press the oil out of an olive, you're going to get a lot of olives before you get the amount of olive oil that you're going to get from those olives. So That's another problem with the oils again is it's concentrating these things. The thing that's interesting about olives for me is that they taste like garbage. Have you ever had an olive that wasn't brined? It's the worst tasting thing you're ever going to have in your life. It's so tannic and horrible. I can't imagine anyone eats that. But I think that generally the brining of olives, maybe that detoxifies some of those massive tannins in that fruit. Olives are kind of a special fruit and I think olives are fine for people. And avocado is definitely a fruit. Cucumber is fine, but I would avoid the cucumber skin and seeds just for the sake of digestion. Um, zucchini is fine. You're going to get a lot of seeds with the zucchini. You might want to be careful of that just to see how sensitive people are. Because I think that generally, plants are defending their seeds. Even if they put the seeds within a fruit, their hope is that you're going to eat the seeds. And they're usually going to package the seeds with some sort of a digestive enzyme inhibitor so that you're going to poop out the seeds and some of them are going to survive. So you can just kind of outsmart the plant by not eating the seeds in the first place and you might have better digestion. So the fruit that people don't think of much are things like squash. So either winter or summer squash, kabocha squash, pumpkin, those kind of things, butternut squash, that's a fruit. It's just going to have to be cooked to get those, the texture to be where you want it to be. In terms of the nuts and seeds, so I talk about this a lot. Seeds are seeds, nuts, grains, and beans. I'm not a fan of grains or beans at all. I wouldn't recommend any of those. Maybe rice, maybe white rice for people, but again, it's not high on my list. Um, see how you respond to it. That would be the one grain that maybe would be less bad, but I'm still not a huge fan. Nuts and seeds, I'm just not a fan, Ben. I mean, I, I, I think that you know macadamia nuts have have less than oleic acid generally, but I think people are still going to run into problems and those nuts don't want to get eaten. You eat too many macadamias, I think you're going to have digestive issues. Coconuts are a nut and even coconut flour, coconut pulp, coconut meat, I think if you eat too much of it, you will notice you're going to get digestive issues. I'm drawing this from my own experience and clinical experience, but the ideas hold. Plants do a very good job evolutionarily of protecting their seeds from overpredation, and the coconut is a seed. And so when I was in medical school, I used to love to make coconut milk. I would take shredded coconut and put it in hot water, and then blend it and squeeze it through a cheesecloth. And sometimes I would drink the coconut milk fresh. this is again my anecdote, but it's been confirmed in my clinical experience. When I would drink that coconut milk fresh, I would often get a little nausea. My stomach would feel a little funny. It wasn't horrible, but I could tell there's something off about this. So what I often did in medical school was I would ferment the coconut milk overnight. There's so much normal lactobacillus on coconut that if you just leave that coconut milk out overnight, it'll ferment. And you're not gonna it's gonna be very sort of sour in the morning, but it was much more easily digested. So uh, you can think about that with many of these things. So, if you wanted to do nuts, you could ferment them or you could sprout them. But even then, I think you're forsaking the foods higher up on the totem pole of human health. And this is perhaps the most important part of the message: that if you are a human and you want to thrive, the more you eat the foods that our ancestors have sought above everything else, the more you eat organs, the more you eat meat, the more you eat animal fat, and the more you eat. I think you know. Don't let you know things like nuts and seeds and grains and beans outweigh. The more valuable foods, or even fruit, which I think is going to be better for you than nuts and seeds, you're going to do better. That's just how it is. Like you can, you get to choose where in the hierarchy of human optimal health you land. And by choosing foods like leaves or stems or roots or seeds, I think you're putting yourself further down the hierarchy. I'm not sure of a, a better way to phrase that, but you're sort of you're forsaking a little bit of your optimal health. I think that you get to easily navigate the landscape today and become a really badass hunter. And a really badass gatherer, you can always find really sought after foods. Honey, organic raw honey has been sought after. Good fruit has been sought after. Organs, meat, these are the most sought after foods. And what tends to happen is people will say like, well, I just want to eat some macadamias. And those macadamias are taking up space in their stomach and calories that they could be using for liver or heart or more meat or different fruit that's going to be more nutritious and less problematic for their digestion. So...
0: Yeah, and the vegans don't like that message, but not a lot of vegans listen to my show anyway. So
1: (laughs) I don't think vegans like anything I'm saying, man.
0: (laughs) Yeah, they don't. Uh, What about vegetables? Uh, I mean, you mentioned fruit and and nuts and seeds, but what about vegetables? Like, what's a hierarchy there? And we'll get your sheet, animalbased30.com. Everybody get that for sure. But just in general, vegetables.
1: Yeah, you know, I did a TikTok about this, and I, I got the question: you know, which vegetables are okay to eat? And my answer was no. (laughs) <laughs> I don't. <laughs> if no. you think canonically about what a vegetable is, it's it's the part of a plant that it doesn't want you to eat. That's that's really implicit. It's the leaf. It's the stem. It's a root, or it's a seed, not grain or bean. And so I don't think these have a role in human health unless you want to go to great lengths to detoxify them. So if you want to do vegetables, I would ferment the heck out of them and maybe do something like sauerkraut. But again, what you have there is a clear illustration that historically, evolutionarily, that cabbage, that brassica plant had problematic things in it for humans. In this case, specifically a family of compounds called isothiocyanates, or more specifically glucosinolates, which are the precursors to isothiocyanates, which are then going to be detoxified and or degraded when you ferment the cabbage. So essentially what you're doing is detoxifying that food to make it somewhat digestible for a human to give some calories. But again. I don't think there's a big benefit there. Um, people sort of like that that fermented flavor or that acetic acid flavor. So okay, maybe some cabbage, but it's a clear indication this is a detoxified plant food that was highly defended in the first place. And again, I think you're sort of forsaking a little bit of your your birthright to a, a more optimal health. But that would be the only vegetables that I would think should ever be included. You know, if you want variety or texture or something, would be Highly fermented vegetables. That would be leaves, stems, roots, and seeds. So, but again, like if people want to do pickles, you can take a cucumber, you know, and you can ferment it. And cucumber is a fruit to begin with. So, probably a good thing. But when you go to the sauerkraut route, I actually had a friend text me the other day. He said, What do you think of kimchi? And I said, Well, it's basically sauerkraut plus a bunch of spices, which really do irritate the human gut. I'm not a fan of kimchi because it's all spicy. And I've done TikToks on this and peppers. I'm not a fan of these things. So, That would be the one thing that I probably should have mentioned earlier, that there are even some fruit. I mean, a red bell pepper is a ripened green bell pepper, which is part of the nightshade family of uh, fruit and plants in general. And those do seem to be problematic for humans in terms of antigenicity and this kind of thing. So even some fruit can be problematic for humans.
0: What about the argument of a hormetic stressor that these, these vegetables could actually cause to the body that will force the microbiome to adapt and po- possibly create more diversity in the gut if somebody has a healthy gut, right? That's the caveat, which most people don't. But what about somebody who has a healthy gut and they're changing up their vegetables, they're mixing it up to great, create a hormetic stressor for diversity in their gut? What do you think about that?
1: Yeah, there's a couple of pieces there. So hormesis doesn't ref- usually refer to gut flora there's no studies I'm aware of that increasing plant fiber changes the diversity of the human microbiome. In fact, there's studies that show the opposite, that when you include more plant fiber in the human diet, the alpha diversity doesn't change at all. And that's been shown multiple times. I even believe by Justin Sonnenberg's lab at Stanford. So this is quite, quite interesting recently that like including more plants doesn't change the alpha diversity of the human gut. I think people conflate that with epidemiology, if you're familiar with any studies that show that interventionally, I'm, I'm open to it. But people conflate the epidemiology and they see that there are rural children in some parts of the world and urban children in other parts of the world and the rural children eat more plants and they have a more diverse gut microbiome, but that's probably because they're playing in the dirt or they get sunlight, which we know affects the diversity of the human gut. What does affect the diversity of the human gut microbiome is fermented food. And so maybe there is an argument for eating fermented cabbage or a fermented pickle. Or I think that a lot of times humans would eat fermented milk or yogurt or kefir. Or let's be honest, if you're a hunter-gatherer, you're going to get lots of bacteria in your diet and in your environment just because of dirt and light and you know wind and all of these things. So our environment, I think, is the major contributor to our, the alpha diversity specifically of the gut microbiome. But I'm not familiar with any studies that show that increasing plant fiber changes the alpha diversity. Similarly, I'm not familiar with any studies that show that removing fiber decreases the alpha diversity of the gut. And those studies have been done, not in the way that I would like to see them done. They put people on a uh, pretty uh, meat-based diet for a week at Harvard and the alpha diversity didn't change in their gut compared to a plant-based diet on the other arm. So those I think are different than the hormetic argument, which is sort of the idea that a little bit of a poison is good for you. And this is Kind of connected with a truism that I think of as a somewhat of a logical fallacy that the dose makes the poison, which I don't agree with completely because lead is lead, and it doesn't matter. Yeah, get a not little, all the
0: time, right? Yeah,
1: yeah. You either get a, you can get a little bit of lead. It's always kind of bad for you. A little bit of mercury is always kind of bad for you. A little bit of arsenic is always bad for you. So the dose doesn't always make the poison. Some things are just not good for humans. But we are squarely in the realm of nuance here, and what we have to really be careful of is not just making assumptions or really not not miscalculating. I think we have to calculate a net benefit for the vegetables here in terms of the the hormetic stress. And I would argue that there's no net benefit because there... I mean, I've talked about this in my book. There are a lot of studies that show that when you include vegetables in the human diet versus people who do not, there's not really a big change in inflammatory mediators, DNA damage. I'm unimpressed by the evidence that vegetables are having a significant. Hormetic benefit in humans. What often gets talked about here is the epidemiology again, that people who eat more vegetables tend to have better outcomes. And it's it's almost like this ad nauseum response: like, okay, that doesn't mean the vegetables did that, right? We cannot draw causative inference here. Is it because the people who are eating more vegetables are a little more clued into health outcomes and are getting more sun and exercising more? And researchers try and control for this, but you really cannot control for healthy user bias and unhealthy user bias in the literature. And so What you find with vegetables is a really clear intent. They have defense chemicals. It's just no question that glucosinolates are a defense chemical. Glucosinolates combined with myrosinase and the brassica vegetables, when they are chewed, there's no sulforaphane in broccoli until you chew it. It's a booby trap. And it's not good for humans. It it inhibits the absorption of iodine in the level of the thyroid along with other isothiocyanates that do the same thing and are sometimes even more potent than sulforaphane, things like goitrin, which are found in Brussels sprouts, which are at doses well within the range of what humans eat in Brussels sprouts that are highly uh, able to affect iodine absorption for the thyroid negatively. So I think that the, the hormetic argument for plants is an interesting one, but I just don't think it's been made strongly enough to convince me. And I would argue against that and say that, There are lots of studies, interventional studies that show that they don't really have a great net benefit in humans. It's not something massive. We have to be careful to not conflate the removal of bad things with the inclusion of good things or the inclusion of other health behaviors with the inclusion of vegetables. And the last thing is that there are hormetics in our environment. So I've contrasted these two things, molecular hormesis and environmental hormesis in my writings and talked about the fact that sunlight, exercise, ketosis... You know, heat and cold are environmental hermetics. They are things we would have done evolutionarily that can have many of the same overlapping mechanisms uh, that we claim these good compounds have. So, the reason sulforaphane is thought to be good is because it increases your glutathione. Well, so does a cold plunge, you know? So does uh, sauna. So does exercise. So does fasting every once in a while. They all have the same benefits. And The argument that I've made in my work is generally that you can get all of the benefits of these plant molecules without the side effects of the plant molecules by just being a human that lives a life outside in the wilderness and does things occasionally, you will be just fine. And I think that that, that's the nuance that's often lost. Like you can live, quote unquote, a radical life. You can just do cool stuff, like go exercise, go in the sun, go in a sauna, go in a cold plunge. Every once in a while, skip a meal, skip two, skip three, fast for a day or two. You're going to get all the same benefits. I mean, I had David Sinclair on my podcast and he's a huge fan of resveratrol. And the reason resveratrol is thought to be a valuable molecule is because it affects the sirtuin genes. Well, you can also affect the sirtuin genes by not eating. You know, like probably when you are fasting overnight, if you do any degree of time-restricted feeding, you are affecting the sirtuin genes in the same way as resveratrol. But you don't get the side effects of resveratrol, which are never talked about, which are hormonal effects. Uh, Resveratrol is known to decrease DHEA, DHEs, and other hormonal androgen precursors. And this has been shown in many studies. It also looks like resveratrol might worsen glucose tolerance in some individuals. So resveratrol What did uh,
0: Sinclair, what did he say about that?
1: Um, he just he said that the doses weren't right, or that it wasn't packaged with fat, and he didn't have ah. a lot of answers for it. Yeah, I mean it's okay. been a it's been a pretty molecule in human trials. So there's all sorts of examples of this. Curcumin is another example. People say, oh, curcumin is so great, but if you look at the literature, and I did a whole podcast on this, curcumin is pretty unimpressive in human trials. Yes, it can abrogate the production of prostaglandins, maybe help with pain, but why do you have the pain in the first place, you know? And then what are the side effects of curcumin? And if you actually look at the molecular mechanisms of this pharmaceutical molecule, like we can with every other pharmaceutical molecule, it's just ignored in the case of plant molecules. Curcumin affects topoisomerase negatively, which is an enzyme that winds and unwinds DNA. It looks to affect P53, which is basically an oncogene uh, involved in cancer. It affects a potassium channel in the heart. It, It affects thioredoxin reductase negatively. So what people fail to realize is that There is a veritable pharmacy out there in the plant world, and these plants are medicines. But I think you have to draw a real distinction between a medicine and a food. You don't take um, metoprolol or a statin every day like a vitamin. Some people might take a statin every day like a vitamin, but they've been misled by their doctors. And most people listening to this will know that there are many negative side effects to taking a statin every day, muscle aches, memory loss, libido problems, all these kind of things. And so there's all sorts of negative effects of taking these pharmaceuticals all the time. And yet with plant molecules, we're told, take this every day, more curcumin is better, more turmeric, more turmeric. And yeah, it's a medicine. It can improve pain in somebody with osteoarthritis, but you could also fix the cause of that osteoarthritis or the cause of that pain. And what we're doing is we're ignoring the package inserts on these plant molecules. We are ignoring the side effects of these plant molecules. And we thought of them as vitamins when they're actually medicines you know, you think about a vitamin and even a vitamin, you can have too much of the vitamin and that can be a problem. But generally we think, okay, it's good to get more riboflavin, like we talked about in this podcast. But uh, from my perspective, like you're looking at medicines and plant molecules, which are good when you are broken, but not necessary for optimal human health. And then we're ignoring all of the negative side effects of these. Does that make sense? It's a really important philosophical thing that I always try to get across as clearly as possible, but don't always succeed.
0: No, it makes sense to me. Uh, the listener probably has to listen or, or kind of rewind it, rewind the whole episode. It's been great. Makes total sense to me. I, I'd love to do another episode with you in 2022. Maybe I'll bring on Dr. Pompa and all three of us can kind of jam out on hormesis and some of the things we're talking about, gut diversity. And, uh, you know, I think it's important to have these discussions and, and you're always open to it and always open to evolving, myself included. So uh, I have one final question that. One of my friends, uh, Gabriel Garcia, wanted me to ask you, so I wanted to make sure I asked you the question. And here's his question. When it comes to xenohormesis, is Dr. Paul okay with occasional exposure to heterocyclic amines and polycystic aromatic hydrocarbons, PAHs, versus occasional exposure to polyphenols, which kind of picks up what we just talked about. So did you understand the question or should I say that again?
1: No, I understand the question. Okay. I understand the question. So... It's interesting because the heterocyclic amines and polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons are... you said that really really
0: fluently, Paul.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I've not asked this question before. I wrote about it. Yeah, yeah. So these are the products of cooking with meat, right? And so people will say like, oh, you're getting exposed to these in meat. and You could make an argument that these are hormetics in the same way and that these are going to have side effects in the same way that the polyphenolic molecules do in plants. But I think that the difference here is that we probably have been exposed to much more Uh, of the heterocyclic amines and much more of the polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons. We've been cooking meat for more than a million years. And then we get into this sort of deep rabbit hole around colon cancer and precancerous adenomas. And what you generally find is that these compounds, the polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons, the heterocyclic amines, are not really shown to be significantly cancer promoting in the human gut unless you get to massively increased doses that are not really found in any normal human diet, even if you're eating two pounds of meat a day like me. And the studies that are done on these molecules that show that they are precancerous are done in calcium deficient rat intestinal models. So if you look at you know, most of the studies that are done for colon cancer for these Products of meat cooking, they're done in, 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 in rodent models, either rats or mice. And when you give the rats adequate calcium, they are not pre-neoplastic. They're not creating colonic adenoma. So you have, to, you have to create this, again, evolutionarily inconsistent milieu in the gut of the rodents to get these compounds to do these things. When you replace the calcium, I think calcium is an important part of every human diet, whether you're getting it from bones or you're getting it from good sources of dairy that's an important thing in the human diet. And we know that in humans, at least, again, this is epidemiology, so no causative inference. But when you do have more calcium in the diet, you tend to see lower rates of colon cancer. So the protestations, the the people get worried about the polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons and the heterocyclic amines in the colon cancer setting um, as well. But I think that, look, like if I'm going to get some of those molecules when I'm eating meat, the juice is worth the squeeze for me because the meat is so valuable. And I don't I don't get a whole lot of them because I am cooking the meat too properly and I'm not singeing it. You'd have to really burn the shit out of the meat to get a lot of that stuff. But I think that it's all dose response. And I'm not completely against polyphenolic molecules in plants either because I do eat fruit. So there's a nuance here between all polyphenols. And again, this is a little bit of evolution in my thinking, but there's a nuance in all polyphenols versus I mean, isothiocyanates are not even really polyphenolic, but they're just like, are we talking about plant defense molecules or are we talking about molecules that occur in plants? So curcumin is a polyphenol, resveratrol is a polyphenol. Uh, I'm not a fan of these molecules, but I think that we are going to get you know some molecules in fruit and they're polyphenolic. I, just, I think we need to do more research and understand, like, are they defense chemicals? To me, it seems like that's not actually what the plant is trying to do unless you're talking about the resveratrol in grapes in response to... A fungus. So the resveratrol is made in the skin of grapes and peanuts and blueberries actually in response to fungus. So if you're eating a moldy berry, you're going to get more of this resveratrol in there. It's like kind of a defense chemical that's clearly making that situation. And, you know, if we get a little bit of it, our body's probably going to be able to deal with it. But what people like David Sinclair and many others are talking about is like megadosing. You know, they're putting turmeric and coffee now. And it's just like, what are you doing? Like, to me, it's gone way overboard. And I think we've we've really disregarded all the negative side effects of these things. So I think it, this is a situation where we go back to the idea of what's evolutionarily consistent. And we try to understand that as best as possible to inform our behaviors as humans. Does that make sense?
0: It makes total sense. I get it. I love it. Have you had a conversation with Dr. Ronda Patrick at all?
1: No. She won't play ball.
0: Hmm. Okay. That would be interesting.
1: She doesn't respond, man. I don't know what to say. Like, all love to you, Rhonda, but she just won't do it. Like she doesn't respond to comments. She doesn't respond to email requests. Like she won't she won't do it. So yeah, because that would be a really great conversation.
0: Yeah, I think it would help a lot of people. So maybe it'll happen. Yeah, it
1: would, but she won't I would love to, <laughs> yeah. But she she won't she won't do it.
0: Paul, where's the best place to check you out? You have your products, which is hardensoil.co. My friend, Paul, his name is also Paul, my neighbor down the street here. He loves your products. He's always using them and promoting you. So shout out to my friend, Paul. But hardensoil.co for the products. Where else can they go check you out?
1: I think just so the podcast is Fundamental Health. And then the socials are either CarnivoreMD on Twitter or CarnivoreMD 2.0 post deletion. Thanks, Instagram. And then I've just carried it over CarnivoreMD 2.0 on TikTok if you want to See what the trolls are saying about all my stuff,
0: and uh, go subscribe to his Paul's YouTube channel. You're about to surpass 100k subscribers, which you will by the time this comes out. So, a hey, congratulations to you, Paul. Uh, you have some great videos on there. We'll we'll do another episode. We'll do round three actually, because this today was round two. There was so much that we didn't even get into, like T4 T3 conversion, the insulin's role, and all that, and just long term ketosis. So we'll do that. Maybe I'll bring on Dr. Pompa. We'll have a great conversation. But Paul. Thank you for your amazing work, uh, being open to always having conversations and evolving and educating so many people. I'm excited for your cookbook in February and we'll put all of your information down below in the podcast notes. So thanks so much for today, Paul.
1: Thanks for having me on, brother. It was fun.
0: Well, I hope you enjoyed that conversation. I know we went long, but I believe it was worth it. Like I said, I'm going to work on getting Paul back and having a discussion with him, Dr. Dan Pompa, Brian Peskin, maybe Dr. Kate Shanahan, to get some more clarity on the linoleic acid and a few other, other things we disagreed about, hormesis, vegetables, stress in the gut, etc. If you enjoyed this conversation, please consider leaving it a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast you listen to, and share it with a friend. Post it on your social media. Tag me, and tag Dr. Paul Saladino. And we'll put links down below for all of his information, by the way, for his podcast, his website. I'll put a link for the previous episode we did on the Keto Camp Podcast with Paul. If you didn't listen to that, listen to that one now. And uh, I hope this was valuable to you. Keto flexing is the way to do it. Metabolic flexibility is the way to do it. If you want to learn more about metabolic flexibility and keto flexing, head to ketoflexbook.com and get my book. There is a chapter all about carnivore in that book because I love carnivore. And I hope this episode was valuable to you. You might want to listen to it a second time and I'll keep you posted on that round table discussion that we might have very, very soon. Thank you so much for listening to the entire episode of the Keto Camp Podcast. I'll see you on the next episode.